0: grace and peace to you wherever you are, whether you're in a car or maybe doing the dishes and listening to this recording. Uh, my name is Mike Stanzik. I'm the teaching pastor at Trinity Community Church in Libertyville, Illinois. If I sound a little different than I usually do when when I'm preaching, it's because I'm actually not in front of the congregation, I'm uh, nor am I behind my pulpit. I'm actually at my desk, um, hunched over a microphone. I've got uh, the sermon in front of me, the manuscript of the sermon in front of me, and here's what basically happened. We, uh, this sermon and the one before it, uh, well, not the one before, but the one you want to maybe, maybe four sermons before it, the, the, the final sermon in our Advent series, due to a, a technical problem, both of those recordings were lost. So I am re-recording the, these sermons here at my desk, um, it's about one o'clock on a sunny February day, and uh, and so yeah, so I'm going to be jumping into this passage out of Matthew, this passage out of Matthew. And so I think what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to read the, the first part of the passage, um, and then the second part I'll leave till a little bit later. But just to get started, I'll read this passage, and then I'll jump into the content of the sermon. Again, I'm 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 walking through the very same manuscript that I, that I used. You know, a lot of the sort of improvised, extemporaneous comments that might have been the original sermon. You know, they're they're probably not going to be here today. There, there's going to be considerably less shouting, as well. Maybe not no shouting, but but less shouting. So. Here, here's the passage we're doing. We're, we're doing Matthew 25, 1 through 30. I'm going to be reading 1 through 13 to get us kind of kicked off. And then once we come to it, I'll, I'll read the, the remainder. So here's what it says. These are the words of Jesus. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. So we are we're we're back in Matthew. This is the home stretch. So at this point we 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 had just finished our recalibrate series and now we're we're returning to Matthew. Uh this is sort of you know this we're we're going to conclude the book this this spring. And we're actually wrapping up a section that we had begun in November. And then after that we'll start the road to the cross. I'm excited to be jumping back in. Uh, I hope that it's been the same for you, but for, for for me, walking through the book of Matthew has been one of the most formative experiences in my faith, uh, just to to spend so much time with the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus to return to just the bedrock, the core of the Christian faith. So I might be sad when Matthew's over. You're probably like, oh we we're, we'll be fine, we'll survive. <laughs> it's been two and a half years. Uh, but you know i'll I'll be sad going to be my temptation at the end of the great commission to be like all right and next sunday we start with the genealogy of matthew yes we're starting again so um well in any case so a little recap we had we had just left off at the end of chapter 24 so that's when jesus is talking about his return right so he's talking about the day when he will return to fully bring about his kingdom and judge the world set the world right and and during that last sermon in November, I, I presented what, what I think is the best way to, to put together what the scriptures say about Christ's return. Not everyone is going to agree with, with the view I put forward there. Uh, it's it's a, a view that was really articulated very well by uh, a guy named R.T. France. Um, but but I, I recognize that there's, there's disagreement on that, but I think all of us who identify as Christians, we, we do need to agree about one thing, which is that Jesus tells us to be ready. So some, some pretty funny ideas can come to mind when we think about folks preparing for the return of Christ. So I think many of us have kind of shared a laugh when, when you get religious leaders who predict the, the coming of Christ down to the date or, or even just down to the decade. So, because, and it's funny because they in, invariably get it wrong. So you end up with guys like Charles Taze Russell, right? So he said Jesus would return in 1914. So he say, "I know the day and the hour, right? 1914 is the year." And then when it didn't, it didn't happen. You know, I think by that time, I think by that time he was dead. Um, when it didn't happen, his followers claimed that it, that it did happen, but it had happened invisibly, right? Uh, which is cheating. That's cheating. You're you're changing the rules. Harold Camping uh, predicted the end of the world uh, to come on October twenty first, twenty eleven. Uh, which obviously didn't happen, but, but there's always predictions that Jesus will return when a new century or millennium rolls around, right? So it's almost like, oh, wait, an extra zero, it must be this year, you know? So uh, Hippolytus predicted it would come in, in, that he would return in the year 500, uh, Pope Sylvester II in the year 1000, then Timothy Dwight IV uh, in the year 2000. So it's easy in our culture to sort of scoff at the at, at you know, when we hear about someone preparing for Christ's return. We, it's easy for us to kind of scoff at that, right? And it's because of the cultural reputation. You know, you 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 uh, you expect Jesus's followers to be like purchasing fallout shelters and, and to be stockpiling canned goods. That's what, that's what, how what we think about what it means to be ready for Christ's return. Because of course, of course, when we talk about Christ's return, we're talking about the end of the world as we know it. And so, there we are with our fallout shelters and our canned goods. But here's what's so interesting about how Jesus tells us to prepare. He tells us to just obey him. Just obey him. The return of Christ in Matthew 24 is described as this sudden, climactic event that that appears with no warning, basically, right? And the important thing is is not that the disciple of Jesus should spend every waking moment just, just trying to think about the parousia, the second coming, right? Like, it's not that, that we're supposed to just kind of always have it on the forefront of our minds. Of course not. You know, that that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not that we're supposed to be just always on the edge of our seat. Instead, Jesus uses this image. He uses the image of a servant awaiting the return of the master. The important thing is that the servant be found at her post. That's how Jesus describes readiness for his return. And so the question comes down to, how will Christ find us when he returns? And the answer isn't so much a state of mind. Instead, it ends up being a way of life. It's not so much a state of mind, it's a way of life. And so what we saw at the end of chapter 24 is how Jesus describes a ready disciple. He describes a ready disciple, a disciple ready for his return, as being a servant at his post. And so now now today Jesus is going to start unpacking that even more. He's going to use three parables. Well, I say three parables, but it's really it's it's two parables, and then there's sort of a a quasi parable. It's the third one that we're going to cover next week. Today we're just going to do those first two, the the first two parables that he tells, uh, which are which are certainly actual parables, you know. Um, and again, what we're going to find is that that being ready for the return of Christ ends up being a a total way of life, and so. How does Christ want to find us when he returns? Okay, so we're supposed to live ready for Christ's return. So let's look at the first thing that Jesus tells us to do to live ready for his return. The first thing is that we live ready for Christ by living with wisdom. So Jesus tells us the first story that he's going to use to illustrate what he's saying, and it's about ten virgins. I don't I don't think there's a specific significance to... The number 10 right but but all 10 of them are doing the same thing they're, they're all awaiting a bridegroom so this was a pretty common practice in first century judaism so you know you'd, you'd have a wedding taking place and and we probably shouldn't think about a first century jewish wedding in the way that we now experience weddings it, it wasn't really the same thing Instead, a lot of a wedding was sort of negotiating it was negotiating a dowry there was negotiating other household arrangements between the two families that were involved. And so most likely what would be happening is that the fathers would be going back and forth with each other. And when they had finally come to what seemed like a fair agreement, the, the couple would be wed. And so while that was going on, while all the negoc- negotiations were going on, you'd a little distance away in, into the, the actual town, you'd have the wedding party. And they might be around the corner, further into the town, or something like that. Uh, but they are often unwed women, so virgins. Yeah, you know, that's what—that's who we have in this parable. Are are these virgins? They're part of a wedding party, and the, and so what they're doing is they're they're waiting for the wedding arrangements to be settled, because once all those arrangements were settled, and and the couple was finally married. What would happen is the the couple would start to make their way to the wedding feast, which of course is this huge blowout thing, huge dinner you know, that you'd share with basically the whole community. And so as the couple is making their way, the virgins would, would be waiting for them and they'd see the couple approaching, and then they would get up and they would all run to greet them, and they'd they'd start dancing and celebrating. And so in some ways, it, it, it's kind of like that moment in American wedding ceremonies when the the couple leaves to get in their vehicle. Uh, we all blow bubbles or we toss rice. Um, I always thought it'd be funny to toss cooked rice, just huck a wad of cooked rice at the wedding couple. I, they would disown, I'd be, I'd be kicked out of the reception, but... I think it'd be worth it, In any okay, so it's that kind of celebrating, so you can imagine that, but it's, but it's even better i mean it it lasts longer it's it's almost <laughs> as though like the if they had gotten their vehicle, and then we all like chased the car or something now I'm going too far with it, but it, it's that kind of celebration now if the, the now let's say the wedding couple started the procession at night, okay, which probably happened more often than not um you know, just because of how long the negotiations could happen. So let's say the 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 they're they're wed after the sun has set. In that case, the wedding party, the, those virgins, would be carrying lamps. Um, at this point, when I when I preached the sermon, I had a uh, a slide of what one of those lamps might have been like, and essentially what it looks like is it's kind of a bowl um, with a tip with like a, a tapered edge on the bowl and there's a wick on the tapered edge of the bowl going down into the bottom of the of the bowl and the the wick would would be sort of like uh you know these long loose fibers and the the back end of it uh, would be at you know in, in the bowl and the bowl would be filled filled with oil so the the oil would would travel up the fibers of the wick and you'd light the wick and it would just slowly um, you know, without actually burning the fibers necessarily, but it would be using the, the oil as fuel for the fire um, and, until, and the, and the the oil uh, would just travel up that wick, you know, as the fire was going, because the fire would attract the oil upward, um, almost like a siphon. Um, you know, it was basically made of clay, so that's how the the, the lamps worked. And so you'd need oil in the lamp. Otherwise, you're lighting the actual wick, in which case the fibers are going to burn right up and it's not going to work. So when the wedding party would hear the couple approaching, they'd light the lamps and, and light the way for the couple so that, that, so that their whole way to the wedding feast would just be this, this joyous, beautiful procession. You know, and it wants to take a second to imagine how, how amazing that is. I mean, it, it was essentially so that every step The wedding party took would be accompanied by light and by singing uh, and by dancing and you have to imagine it too in the age where there are no street lights you know so so the the only light source aside from the lights in homes maybe the the light source is is coming from these lamps a lot of the homes might have been darkened because they're probably all waiting at the wedding feast um and so every step in in this dark street leading up to the wedding party would be lit by these by these lamps. I mean, it, it just it was something, um, just a very beautiful thing, you know. And so what? And, and so Jesus presents us with with these virgins with with this wedding party, and they've all come with their lamps. and And I think it's it's clear. Just we can imagine how beautiful this would have been. It's clear why this would have been such a big deal. It would have been a really beautiful and exciting thing. To, to be a part of one of these wedding parties. When when you were a part of one, you kind of got caught up in the, the glory of the couple's marriage. So the excitement and the joy would be yours to share with them on that walk. And you'd kind of have this honor. So in some ways, it's kind of like like our receptions as well, because we we do have that moment where the wedding party, you know, everyone's waiting at the reception, which is kind of our wedding feast. And you know when the wedding party gets there we don't just applaud the the couple you know obviously they get the standing ovation but we actually applaud the the wedding party too it's kind of our way of honoring their place in the couple's life they're honoring uh their friendship and and the responsibility that they're taking on to support this couple's marriage um and to to be a constructive presence in their life so we, we kind of have an analog for this um you know, And so if you were given the chance to be part of one of, this, one of these wedding parties, I mean, it's your chance to share in the, in the glory of this couple. And, and and you do whatever you could to, to not miss out. You, you do whatever you could to not miss out. And so that's what actually should tip us off to what's weird about the story. Because you would do whatever you could to not miss out. So if you were, you were going to be a part of this wedding party, you're going to do whatever you can to be a part of it. But we're told that five out of the ten virgins have decided not to take any oil for their lamp. So without oil in the lamp, again, the flame isn't going to burn at all, in which case they can't really participate. Now why would they do that? Why would they forget to bring oil, or why would they just fail to bring oil? So it could be that they didn't think the bridegroom would take so long. Maybe they thought he'd come during the day. Uh, So maybe they assumed they wouldn't have to wait. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that they assumed someone else would have brought enough oil for them, too. They relied on someone else's preparation. And it kind of seems like that's a part of it, since they end up asking the other virgins to, to give them some of their oil. You know, they're, they're wanting someone else to prepare for them, to do their preparation for them, which, of course, the other virgins can't do. And I think this reveals a deeper problem. You're left wondering, how important is it really to these five virgins that they be a part of the procession? Because the the, the wise five, they planned for this. They wanted to be part of this wedding feast. And so what did they do? They strategized. They thought through, okay, what, what obstacles might get in the way of me being a part of this? Stuff like nighttime, right? They strategized and they made sure that if the bridegroom was delayed, they'd be prepared, right? Being a part of this wedding party was their goal. They did what they had to do to be there. But the foolish virgins weren't thinking that way. They didn't strategize to be at the wedding feast. So, nighttime, a delayed bridegroom, oil for lamps, all of that was just stuff for their future self to deal with. Right, And then suddenly they're faced with this possibility of not making it to the wedding feast. So their future self suddenly becomes their present self and suddenly they have to face up to the fact that they have put no thought into this. They did not strategize. They might not have even cared. Maybe other stuff felt more important back then. And so in the end they're left out. How important is it to you that you be a part of Christ's kingdom. Jesus is telling us that that discipleship is something that we have to strategize for. We set budgets. We schedule time. We set New Year's resolutions. We craft goals. We work for fitness milestones. The companies we work for lead strategic planning sessions. We check off skills our children need to learn, but do we strategize to follow Jesus? Earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus instructs us to count the cost of discipleship, so to spend time considering what following Jesus will ask of us. Are we in this for the end? Or are we still one foot in, one foot out? What are we about? Because at the end of the day, no one else can walk this path for you. That the wise virgins could not prepare for the foolish ones at the end of the day no one else can prepare for you no one else can count the cost for you no one else can live your life you have to and so plan to trust in Jesus plan to give him your loyalty plan to keep repenting plan to follow Jesus plan to bear witness to his kingdom plan to define yourself by what he says of you that's what that's what he's saying strategize like a disciple Make it your prime objective to be at that wedding feast. This really just comes down to a question of priorities. What is most important to you? What do you base your decisions on? And I want to point out that this isn't like a task that we complete. This is a total way of seeing the world. So living prepared for Christ isn't about just making sure you schedule time for scripture and prayer, right? That's not... That's not what living prepared is all about. But here's, obviously, here's the thing. If if you are living prepared for Christ, you will inevitably pray and read scripture. You'll set that time apart. That'll be part of your strategy. But it's not just about one single task. It's about a a whole way of life, an entire outlook that says, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to follow Jesus until the end strategize to be known by the bridegroom when he comes. All right, so live ready for Christ's return by living with wisdom. Secondly, live with faithfulness. All right, so at this point I'd like to read the the, the next parable. All right, here it goes. Verse 14 on. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, and saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. So you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. <clears throat> and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So servant, uh, Jesus tells this parable about these servants, and again, it's the same theme. What does it mean to live prepared for Jesus' return? So in the story, there are three servants, and each of them are given a certain amount of talents. Okay, so there's this kind of unfortunate thing that happens when we hear the word talent. Because we instantly think of a talent as sort of an ability, like an innate skill that we have. Oh, he's really talented at that, right? So we say stuff like that. So this thing takes place where where we've got people saying, Oh, i got to use my talents, right? You know, we've got dudes with wives and children neglecting their family time, fantasizing about quitting their jobs because it's like, I got to use my talents. My band is going to make it. I got to use my talents. God wants me to. So we, we even get this phrase, burying your talents. And what, what do we usually mean by that? We, we mean not doing what you're talented at. That's not, that's not really what Jesus is getting at here. And that's, what I'm not saying is that skills and abilities aren't important I'm not saying that. there's certainly gifts from God, and if we have opportunity to use them at work, at home, as a hobby, uh, in our community, then great. If, if you have opportunity to use your skills and talent, skills and talents, certainly that's a gift from God, and, and, and you ought to do that. It can be very gratifying. But it's important to mention that in this parable, talents represent way more than that, not less, but way more way more. So a, a talent was the highest denomination of currency that they, that they had uh, in, in the first century Greco-Roman world. It equals about $2,400. So it's, it's many, many days' wages. So in this, cer- in this story, there's a master that's going away for a time, and he entrusts his property to his servants. He gives them talents. He's giving his property to his servants in the form of talents. And he doesn't give them all the same amount. One is given five, the other two, the last one is just given one. And so they're each given a certain amount and they're expected to be faithful with what they've been given. So we should think about the talents as kind of the hand you were dealt, right? Your talents are your resources, they're your networks, they certainly are your skills, they're also your wealth. They're your relationships. It's it's your total life situation. It's all your opportunities, including whether you have an opportunity to use your skills or maybe you don't have an opportunity to use your skills. Right? Um, it's the hand you were dealt. The, the talents are the hand. It's the hand you were dealt. So hopefully that makes sense. Um, and one of the most important features of this parable is this fact. This is really important. That this doesn't get missed. We don't miss this. Not everyone gets dealt the same cards. Okay, not everyone gets dealt the same cards. So the first servant is given five talents. That's quite a bit. And he brings back a substantial return. He comes back with ten talents, right? So he's, he's doubled what he had. And he's praised. Well done, good and faithful servant. And, and, and then the second servant comes up. Now, he doesn't come up with ten. In fact, he started with two, and he comes back with four. So he, he actually doesn't even achieve half of what the first servant achieved and so you'd expect that to be reflected in how the master responds to him you know like like maybe the master's pleased but he's not that pleased you know but instead you get the exact same words from the master the exact same enthusiasm well done good and faithful servant right because both the first and the second servant have been faithful with what they were given Right, so the point isn't so much that they each doubled what they were given, the point is that the you know what, what the, the device in the story the way that the device and the, the story device is working is that you know, um, the, the fact that they doubled their resources kind of shows that they were faithful with their resources. Um, you know, so it's not saying that you have to somehow quantify the return on your faithfulness or whatever, but but in the story, it's that both of the servants were faithful with what they had. And the master replies in exactly the same way. That's the kind of master you want to work for. A master that takes into account what you had to work with. What's important to the master is that both his servants were faithful with what they had. The point was not that they both made ten talents in the end. The point is not how much they ended up with. The point was not how productive they looked from a numbers standpoint. All the master was concerned about was that they could be trusted with whatever they were given. That's all. Could they be trusted with what they were given? And so the the application is pretty clear, but but I'll spell it out. We have suffered under a culture that measures our worth by our accomplishments, by our achievements, by how amazing we appear to be compared to the average person. Which, which, of course, is sick. The result is that there are hardworking, faithful people who live every day feeling as though something is, of, is expected of them that they just can't live up to. A lot of times this manifests in sort of a vague sense of shame. Like, oh, I, should have been, I should have been a different sort of person. If only I'd had different life circumstances. If only I'd been able to go to this school. Or if only I'd waited longer to have kids. Or if only I had more free time or whatever. I should have been more. But I read this parable and what seems to me is that Jesus is not going to shame you because you didn't graduate valedictorian or because you never achieved the best body or you never got around to writing that book or because you never did anything that, that marked you off as somehow more extraordinary than the average person. Jesus cares about one thing. Were you faithful with what you were given? Were you faithful with what you had to work with? Trinity, I hope that you can be released from that shame. At the end of the day, God doesn't want you to, to rise to the occasion by living someone else's story. He's asking you to rise up to yours. With your conflicts, with your obstacles, with your limitations, with your sins, with your habits. And he's telling you to be faithful to him in that. To seek his kingdom under those pressures, to to repent under those pressures, to rely on him, love him, love the people in your life, trust the cross of Christ, give your loyalty to, to, to Jesus under those circumstances. That's what he's asking you to do. And too often we mourn that we weren't given better cards to play, and so we never play our cards. Trinity, play your cards, whatever they are. Be faithful. God has given you the gift of life. He's given you the gift of your life. However hard it is, however confusing it is, he's given you the gift of your life, of your story. The the glory of your story is going to be the way That you were faithful under your unique pressures. That the glory is going to be in how God worked through your obedience. The way that a clay jar can hold a treasure of great worth. Treat your life like a gift. Like you are stewarding someone else's property. Because... You, in, in many ways, you can't control what you were given. You, you didn't control all the circumstances of your life. You might be responsible for some of them, but you didn't control all of them. But they're certainly not out of God's control. God knew what he was doing when he brought you into being. He knew that you were going to face these particular pressures. He is even sovereign over the pressures that you were taking, that, 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 that you were taking on. Live your life like a gift. Because it's not yours. It is God's property. And it is not yours to throw away. It's not yours to disdain or despair of. On a very practical level, I think this just means paying attention. Pay attention to how much time you have, how many responsibilities you have, how much wealth you have. And ask yourself, what does it look like for me to be faithful with this? How can this too be used for the kingdom? You know, Jesus tells another parable along these lines where there's a master who's uh, sort of staffing his, you know, uh, he has all this land and he he needs, you know, folks to, like day laborers, he needs day laborers to, to work his land. So he goes out at the break of dawn and gets these really go-getter guys and they're gonna work all day. And then at different intervals throughout the day, the master goes out and he's, he's grabbing more day laborers to, to work the fields, to the point that at the end of the day, he's kind of getting the, this freeloader bunch, you know, at like 5 p.m. And, and they come and they work for maybe an hour. And then at the end of the day, the, the amazing thing about the story is that the master goes and he gives each of them the same wage because each one of them the same wage and and the the go-getters from the morning are are ticked about it and they say we've been here all day you know you, you got to give us more than than what you gave the freeloaders and the parable really comes down to this that the master gives what he gives out of grace some of us you know what what's asked of us is to to carry a very heavy cross. And for others, the cross might be a little lighter. But what the master's after is just faithfulness. And what we're receiving as a result of our faithfulness is ultimately a gift of his grace, not something that we're earning, truly. We're we're, we're being led by a gracious master. He just wants us to be faithful. God is gracious. In the words of the psalm, he knows your frame. He didn't give you what you have on accident. The master chose to give the one servant five talents, just like he chose to give the other one talent. He's the one who brought your life into being, which means that he brought you into this very circumstance. So be faithful. So that's our second point. Living ready for Christ's return means living, ready, living with faithfulness. So now there's another element that I see in this passage, and it's kind of an interesting thing. But well, it's the element of risk. There's an element of risk in this passage. Somehow part of living a life of discipleship, a life devoted to the way of Jesus, will involve a sense of risk. And I'm almost hesitant to, to word this point th- this way. I'm almost hesitant to say, you know, that involves risk, because I'm worried about how it can be misapplied you know, so let me immediately qualify what I just said. Does living with risk in a Christian way mean neglecting or endangering yourself or your family so that you can start a band? No, right? That goes back to kind of misapplying the whole idea of the talents. Having a talent as, at something does not mean that it's God's will that you use your talent if your life really hasn't given you that kind of a an opportunity. Some of us are just going to have to work harder and have less free time, and, and and we have to be faithful in that, right? So risk doesn't mean that you're neglecting or endangering yourself or your family so you can start a band. It does not mean that you should irresponsibly put money toward a charity that should otherwise be wisely used for food and shelter, right? I mean, that's the tragedy of these televangelists who go to oftentimes to very impoverished communities and tell them, hey, sow a seed, right? Sow a seed, and God will reward you. They're robbing the poor, I mean, it's just a really horrifying thing. So, obviously, so that's my qualification. There's, there's a lot that having risk does not mean. And yet there's this real sense in this passage in which Jesus is telling us that living wisely and faithfully for his kingdom will involve what most people see as risk. Discipleship, if you have the eyes to see it, is adventure. So, see what happens with the unfaithful servant. So, he's given one talent, just one. And so, what he could do is he could go out just like the others and he could try to invest it, make that money work. But if he does that, again, he only has one talent. So, if he does that, he's going to be putting the money on the line. And he's afraid of what the master is going to do. Because he has this image in his head of, of the master as the master isn't, right? He doesn't. Realize the master is a master of grace. He has this image in his head of, of the master being what he calls a hard man, miserly, ungenerous. And so he doesn't want to lose the money, nor does he want to risk the money. And so, so he buries it, right? He doesn't want to try to make more on it and risk losing it altogether. So he buries the talent to make sure that he doesn't lose what he's been given so he just tries to maintain the status quo. He fails to be faithful by failing to risk. Now this comes out even more when you, when you look at the line that the master has. So the master criticizes him for, for not thinking to put the money in the bank. Now here's what's really crazy about that. So banks <clears throat> had, they were like a pretty recent invention in the first century. <clears throat> I'm going to take a sip of coffee. If my voice is getting progressively more gravelly, it's because I, I've actually re- I, I recorded the the suffering servant sermon immediately before this, um, so uh, so it's, I'm getting kind of tired here, but and for some reason, just you know, bending over a microphone at a desk is not as good for my voice as having, you know, a microphone and speakers. Go figure. Uh, okay, so so sorry if that's an, annoying at all. Um, where was I? Banks. So banks in the first century were, were relatively a recent invention. Um, and, and they were kind of sophisticated in some ways. I mean, when, when you, when you think about the limits of, of what they had to work with, I mean, they, so they actually had an interest, uh, an interest system. So if you did put your money in a bank, you, it, it would actually make interest even back in the first century. But again, there's no vaults, right? There's no retina scanners. There's no keypads. It's, it's like a dude with a bag that your money is in you know hidden somewhere in his house which you know has a very crude easily broken lock if anything and so it was very risky you you would get interest they had they had a process for that but it was it was very risky because anybody could break into that guy's house in fact he himself could run away with your money there's lots of risks so then think back to what the master said. He's saying that he would have preferred the the servant to risk losing the talent, to, to put it in the bank. He would have preferred that he risk losing the talent rather than bury it. So so compare that servant's fear, his trepidation, his hesitation, his apprehension, compare that with the first servant. So this this comes across better in the Greek. But in the passage it says that the first servant goes at once he went at once um and again it comes across a little bit clearer in the in the Greek but there, there's this kind of se- sense of like he got his orders and he's off right I mean he 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 doesn't waste any time he's not going to let the grass grow under his feet he's off he went at once um, and he just gets to it you know he he's probably aware of the risk but he's going to get in there and he's going to work. He's going to be faithful. And he's going to jump into this adventure. Discipleship is adventure. Now, how are we going to actually find the courage to risk? I think the answer is the gospel. I think the reason that we can risk is because we do not live under the law. Our master is not a miser. He is not an ungenerous man. We do not live under under the hard gaze of a taskmaster, the eyes of God are on us in love, fatherly love, tender love. How can that be? Because each of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, have spent a lot of time not prioritizing the kingdom. We have not strategized for it. We have not been faithful with everything we've had. We, you know, we've we failed to do the things that we ought and we have done the things that we ought not to do. I haven't been faithful with everything, so how can those failures not define me in the end? The reason why is because our failures have been absorbed in the body of Jesus. This is the burning, energizing center of Christian spirituality. The center of the Christian faith is the news that Jesus died for sinners. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. Jesus stood in for us. He had solidarity with us so that we could be forgiven. But not only that, it was so that we might become the righteousness of God. And I think that, you know, when you look at that passage, that's Second Corinthians 5, 17. I hope that's right. When you look at that passage, I think that, that that quote of God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we, we might become the righteousness of God, I think there's two, thing, two, two, two things that are operating in that passage to describe what Jesus did. First off, God declares us righteous. We're not righteous. God declares us to be righteous because Jesus' status as the one truly good and righteous man is merited to us as the we are, 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 are truly good and righteous men and women. So that's the one sense but then also by his spirit he begins to make us righteous by leading us in the way of Jesus so that our lives actually display the righteousness of God the goodness of, of God not out of fear but out of love one of our previous pastors David Niblack he used to say that in Christ all the most important things have been resolved we we, we not only can throw ourselves into this thing but we can do it with joy so here's a quote from a, a, a great modern Christian author His name is Andy Wilson. He's mainly done uh, like young adult novels, and they're really fun. They're really good. So the Hundred Cupboard series is something that I would um, warmly recommend to, uh, to families in the, in the church. So, so Trinity, yeah, check out Andy Wilson. But here's a quote from one of two memoirs that he that he wrote. Kind of, I mean, they're both kind of about this. I mean, they're they're about living your discipleship out as as adventure. So here's his quote. He says, Lay your life down. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands, blister them while you can. You have bones, make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs, let them spill with laughter. With an average life expectancy this is still the quote, with an average life expectancy of seventy eight point two years in the US, subtracting eight hours a day for sleep, I have around Two hundred fifty thousand conscious hours remaining to me in which i could be smiling or scowling rejoicing in my life in this race in this story or moaning and complaining about my troubles i can be giving my fingers my back my mind my words my breath to my wife and my children my neighbors or i can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself dragging my feet afraid to die and therefore afraid to live and like adam I will still die in the end. There's this element in this parable that tells us live with whatever you have, live. But the risks for the kingdom may be different than you expect. Right? They're not necessarily the sorts of risks that that we would easily celebrate, or that would easily occur to us. After all, this is why theologians call Jesus' kingdom the upside-down kingdom. So here's a couple of the possible risks. What what if you risked the awkwardness, uh, you know, of, of leading your family in family worship? In particular, I'm, I'm talking to the fathers here. You know, if um, if, if if yours is a household with a father and that father identifies as a Christian um, you know we we have five hundred years now of Reformation history showing us that when fathers lead family worship amazing things happen not just in that home but sometimes societally there's a there's a great little book by Donald Whitney called family worship what what if you risked the awkwardness of family worship what if what if you risked embarrassment and confessed sins that, have, that you've been mired in just routinely, habitually, these, these sins that have kept you mired in, in a pattern of life that has estranged you from people, estranged you from God. What if you confessed those embarrassing sins to one, two, three people in the church and and, and repented and said, help me repent. What if you risked Bridging those spiritual conversations with friends and neighbors, and and you let them know the gospel. What if you what if you risked the the time and the energy to to be hospitable? What if you what if you actually passed on a promotion so that you can continue to pour into your people, in, into people in your life and your family? Uh, I shared on the Sunday when I delivered the sermon that that's what my dad did. That's what my dad did. And uh, and my brother and I are very. Very grateful to have had our, our dad at home. You no, know, he rests, He could have, he could have you know been on a partnership track. It made a lot of money. But instead we had our dad at home. And I'm thinking about this even in terms of how, how we as Christians in Lake County can partner with other churches, other Christians in Lake County who are gospel believing. Live, living under, under the authority of Scripture. What if we all started to think this way, as a group, and and got over the weird competitiveness bet- between churches? And instead, saw ourselves as the Church of Lake County, and we started thinking this way. I wonder if, if if stuff would occur to us, like to to pool our resources to adopt children in Lake County that need homes. What if we What if we risked our time to build people up in the Lord? What if we tried to address the loneliness issues of of the affluent communities? Uh, here and, and we started a co-working space or what if we tried to address the, the scarcity of education options uh, on the east side and we start a, a classical Christian school in Waukegan on a scholarship system right? Like I'm just spitballing. My point is, is just this treat following Jesus like adventure and you might say but you don't know my situation you don't know how difficult it is with my family you don't know how intense my temptation can be You don't know what I'm up against. And I would say, I hear you. I hear you. But maybe a point of clarification is in order. When I say discipleship is adventure, I'm not saying it's an adventure like kids wandering in the woods with sticks as swords kind of adventure. However important that is. Very important in the development of a kid. what i'm saying when i say discipleship is adventure i'm saying it's real adventure the dragons are real there are ramparts to climb doors to batter down moats to leap across being faithful to jesus will lead us into situations where we are passing up on what our culture is telling us is a worthwhile life health will mean something different to christians success will mean something different to christians we are going after different outcomes we seek the kingdom of heaven. We follow the way. But we should remember that not only is Jesus the way, he's the life. We got to remember that it's by doing this that we will find life in following him. Is is it in Psalm 19? I should remember this off the top of my head, but is it in Psalm 19 where where we get that, that verse about It is in the way of the Lord and the precepts of the Lord that a servant will find great reward. That's not necessarily monetary reward. It's finding the good life. The way of the Lord. God is not calling us into a doomed adventure either. That's an important thing to remember too. He's calling us to take part in the coming of his rule to our world. When we announce the gospel, we tell people that any one of us can be cleansed and forgiven by God's grace. When we serve those in need, when we love each other, we demonstrate the kind of world that God is bringing about and he's not going to lose. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The nations will be discipled. Christ will put his foot on the neck of death itself and all things will be made new. Live ready.